Crossroads, you can have your seats. I'm grateful to Austin as a friend and as my pastor, and especially as I have the privilege of uh, opening God's Word with you uh, this morning. I have the task of showing you what God's Word has to say about work, about work. And to do this, I want to give you a number to think about, 90,000. What do you think of when you hear the number 90,000? It's a big number. Well, 90,000 hours is how much time the average American will spend at work in their lifetime. 90,000 hours. And if you add up all the time you spend in school and in your studies preparing for your job, that number goes well beyond 100,000. Now, to put that in perspective, that is almost a quarter of your waking hours on this planet. On average, about 25% of your conscious life will be spent working, either at school or at your job. And 25% is a lot. In most grad schools, if you miss 25% of the points in a class, you get a D. I would know. I'm just kidding. Uh, If you reduced the amount of calories you ate every day by 25%, you would lose on average one to two pounds a week, which doesn't sound too crazy, but that's 50 to 100 pounds in a year. And if I did that, I would die. (laughs) 25% is a lot. And that's just the hours literally at your job. You see, your work certainly has effects outside of the four walls of your office. Uh, Your job, your work affects your your family life. It affects your time of play and rest, which we'll talk about in the next few weeks. And so your work accounts for 25% of your life and a whole lot more than that. And so unless you are okay with, with wasting or with mishandling or squandering at least 25% of your life, it is really, really important that you understand what God has to say about your work. Now, I realize in a room like this that for most of you, your work is not going to the office from nine to five. Your primary work responsibility is studying. It's going to class, it's taking exams, it's, it's writing papers, and on top of that, you don't even get paid for it. And in fact, you're the one paying for it. So you pay to go to work, which is a really brutal brutal situation. Um, But in a group like this, that's just where most of you are at. Your primary work responsibility is in the classroom. And while the classroom certainly is a lot of work, it's also a stage in your life that's unique because it's a stage in your life that's preparing you for what's next. Uh, Most of you are on the precipice of of jumping into working life, and that's going to be a staple in your life for the next 30 or 40, or 50 years. And that's why I think a topic like this is so tremendously valuable for a group like us here in Crossroads. Because you're in a stage of your life where most of your work is actually ahead of you. Yes, you're working now in school and in the classroom and maybe some side jobs. And don't get me wrong, I truly believe that the Bible will be able to transform your life as a student. 
But I think what, what the Bible has to say about work can do a whole lot more than that. I think it'll not only transform your life as a student, but also just as a Christian. You see, these few years in school are really the, the blink of an eye compared to decades of life post-graduation. And so in this unique stage of your life, you have the privilege and, and the unique opportunity to understand God's perspective on your life before you've lived it. You have the chance to redeem more of this massive aspect of your life than almost anyone else. And so my goal this morning is to show you from God's word how to do that a little bit better. You see, God's word can help you take those 90,000 hours of work and turn them into 90,000 hours of worship. Your work can become your worship because work is inherently oriented towards God. That's what I want to show you this morning. Work is inherently oriented towards God. Work comes from God. It it centers around God. It it honors and it glorifies God. And if you understand that, your work and your worship will be one in the same. If you understand that work is fundamentally, by its very nature, by its very design, oriented towards God, those 90,000 hours of your life can have eternal value. And so this morning, I want to show you just three simple ways that work is oriented towards God so that your work can become your worship. How is work oriented towards God? First, because work is God's design for mankind. Work is God's design for mankind. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 with me. Genesis 2 will begin where everything began. And as we look at this passage and we see the the inception of the universe, uh, we'll see that from the very, very start, God designed mankind to work. As we pick up here in Genesis 2, God has just finished creating the world. He's made plants and animals and, and oceans and even people. And then we read Genesis 2, 2 through 3. Look at Genesis 2, 2 through 3. It says, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Genesis 2 calls creation an act of work. And that makes God a worker. God is a worker. And notice that we are in Genesis 2, which comes before Genesis 3. And that's important because up until Genesis 3, the state of the universe was in absolute perfection. Before Genesis 3, there was no sin in the world. Humanity had not yet been been plunged into depravity. and, And it's in this perfect and sinless and pristine world that God worked. And if God is a worker, and if God worked in this pure and and uncorrupted world, then work at its core, in its most fundamental nature, is a good thing. Work is good. That's why Genesis 1.31 says, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Good. 
God is a worker and work is good. And what does that have to do with, with God's design for us, with God's design for mankind? Well, look at Genesis one twenty seven. Genesis one twenty seven says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I'm sure that you are at least a little bit familiar with this verse. But when you understand it from, from this angle of work, I think it has the, the power to change your, your whole perspective on this aspect of your life. Because there is a, a profound value and a profound dignity that every single human being has because they are made in the image of God. Christian or not, if you are, if you are a human, you have a dignity above all creation because you bear God's image. And part of that distinct and, and incredible honor of bearing God's image is working. Look just a verse ahead at Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the first ever job description. Adam shows up to work on his first day. He just had surgery. He's missing a rib, but he's totally fine because it's pre-fall. And God gives him his assigned duties. And if you look closely at, at Adam's first work responsibilities, his job is really, really godly. The, the first command that God gives to mankind is unmistakably godlike. Man is told to create, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Man is told to exercise authority and power and dominion over the rest of creation to subdue it and, and to have dominion over it. You see, God designed work so that mankind could image God on the earth. And again, let me remind you, this is before Genesis 3. This is before sin entered the world. There was work to do before sin entered the world. There were, there were tasks to complete before the fall. And it was in this perfect and, and sinless world that Adam bore God's image in part by working. You see, Adam was living out the highest honor of all creation simply by working simply by doing his job. And as he used his uniquely designed brain and his uniquely designed body to, to name the animals and, and cultivate the garden and subdue the earth, Adam was imaging the creator. In his work, Adam lived according to God's good and perfect design, and that made his work his worship. Crossroads, have you considered the use of of your unique mind and the use of your body as you study and as you work as an opportunity to bear the image of God? How much more could you show up to work with contentment and, and excitement even and joy and gratitude knowing that, that working is living according to God's design? Do you see how that, how that honors God? 
Uh, do you see how, how it glorifies him and how it transforms work into worship? Because when you live like you were designed to live, you bring glory to the one who designed you. That's why companies put their logos on their stuff, right? Because guys like Elon Musk want you to know that it was his design and his genius that makes Teslas and SpaceX rockets so cool. Well, you and I, we, we bear God's logo, so to speak. And, and if God designed us in his perfect genius to work, then we bring glory to God when we work. And on the other hand, if we live in, in laziness or in idleness or in sluggery, then we dishonor our creator in sin. To live like that would be like a, a Tesla battery going out 10 feet from the garage. It's not doing what it's designed to do, and it speaks really poorly of the one who designed it. And so when we are lazy, when we act like a sluggard, we are rebelling against God's design and speaking poorly of him. You see, laziness is a serious, serious sin because it is a failure to to fulfill one of the most basic and fundamental designs of God as bearers of his image. Listen quickly uh, about what God has to say about the sluggard. These are just a few verses from the Proverbs. Proverbs 6.11, Poverty will come upon the sluggard like a robber and want like an armed man. Proverbs 13.4, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. Proverbs 24, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. 2125, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long, he craves and craves. Work is such an integral part of God's design for us that rebellion against it has serious, serious consequences, even death. We need to understand laziness as rebellion against our God-given design because for such a serious violation of God's will, you will be left desperate and, and you will be left always wanting and always craving but never having. Now let me be clear. When I say that there is fulfillment in work, I am not saying that there is fulfillment based on the kind of work that you do. Okay, I'm not, I'm not talking about some, some feeling of finding your calling to be a, a physical therapist or to be a dentist or a graphic designer. I'm talking about something so much deeper than that, so, so much more real, so, something that, that, that has nothing to do with your interests or your skills or, or what you're good at or your training. Because it's not the kind of work that you do that will bring ultimate fulfillment. It's simply being faithful to work at all. Because work itself fulfills that creational mandate. That that first ever job description in Genesis 1 to, to exercise authority over the earth. Work in and of itself is fulfilling. Because it is living according to God's design. And it is for your, your greatest good and your highest joy. That's why I think that saying, uh, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life, 
I think that's so unhelpful because fulfillment in your work is not about what you do. It's about who you ultimately serve. So don't go seeking fulfillment in in the kind of work that you do or in the job that you want. Instead, find fulfillment in honoring your creator by living according to his design. This is Paul's heart when he writes Colossians 3.23. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, your work can be your worship because you work to honor and serve God. Crossroads, you were made in the image of God, and so you were made to work. And so as you study, and as you go to your job, and as you prepare to go to your job for another 90,000 hours in your life, know that all of that time, all of it, is an opportunity for you to honor the God who created you to work. Work is God's design for mankind. I think right now it's it's time that I address the uh, the elephant in the room, because work is also hard. (laughs) Work is really hard. God works and work is good, and God designed us to work, but work is hard. It's it's often unpleasant. It's often painful. Sometimes it fails. Uh, Sometimes it it makes you mad. Sometimes it makes you frustrated. Sometimes, sometimes it just doesn't produce what it's supposed to produce. And that's because, as I'm sure you're all aware, we, we don't live before Genesis 3. Uh, we all live after Genesis 3. We live in a fallen world, and everyone and everything has felt the tragic effects of sin. And work is no exception. In fact, work itself is one of the best examples of the fallenness of this world. It has been particularly and specifically affected by sin. And because of that, work is also God's reminder for mankind. That's our second point. Work is God's reminder for mankind. We just saw that work is is oriented towards God because it's his design for us. It was something that God did and something that God created us to do as his image bearers. But on this side of the fall of Genesis 3, work is also oriented towards God as a reminder for mankind. You see, those hours and hours and hours that we are all probably going to work in our lifetime— are not only valuable because they can honor God inherently. They are also valuable because they remind us of the gospel. Now, I know that might seem like a little bit of a stretch, but uh, turn in your Bibles just a page or two over to Genesis 3, and I'll show you what I mean. Genesis 3. uh, As I thought through this this past week, the two emotions that I felt most were uh, gratitude and also a sense of, of excitement for my own work, but also for all of you who are in college. Again, you have the chance to redeem more of your work hours than almost anyone else because of your life stage. And if you understand work in this way, if you understand work as a kind and gracious reminder of the gospel from God, I think it'll help you to, to grow a heart of worship through your work. 
Genesis 3, 14 through 19. At, at this point in the narrative, uh, Adam and Eve have just been tempted by the serpent. They sinned, and in their shame, they hid from God. And then God, in his sovereign and, and kind grace, sought them out, asked them what they did. Adam and Eve explained. And then verses 14 through 19 is God's response. This is God's response to Adam and Eve. Verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Did you catch what God said to Adam in verse 17? Look again. God doesn't say in verse 17, cursed are you, Adam, because you sinned. No, God says cursed is the ground because of you. God, God here curses the ground. And, and I want to ask you a question about that. Why? Oh, after this cosmic and heinous and unprecedented offense against God, after this act of rebellion against the God of the universe, the gavel slams down and the punishment is a curse on the ground. Why? Well, what's the point of that? Well, the point is that every single human being would have a daily and an inescapable and an incessant reminder of the devastating consequences of sin. Because of this curse, survival itself will become toilsome. God says, in pain you shall eat. Thorns and thistles will come up out of the ground instead of what you want it to. It'll produce, it'll produce thorns and thistles instead of fruit that you want to eat. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat. This curse is inescapable because you either work and you sweat and you labor so you can eat or you don't labor and you starve and you die. The Apostle Paul teaches this same theology in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 11. Uh, listen to his words in 2 Thessalonians 3. He says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You see, from Genesis 3 to the New Testament, this curse 
is always a reality. Labor and hard work and sweat are necessary to eat and simply survive. You see, living itself has become difficult. Living itself has become laborious. And so every single person on this earth is forced to feel the devastating and destructive and awful effects of sin. You realize that every day we are subject to hunger and need, and it will never, ever, ever stop in this life. It's like we walk out of our doors every morning and there's just a giant billboard right in our face that says sin is destructive. Sin is destructive. And if that sounds burdensome to you, if that sounds exhausting to you, or if that sounds sad to you, well, it should. Because that is the effect of sin. Every single person is incessantly reminded that sin threatens life. Sin threatens life itself. We are constantly reminded that a deviation from God's will wreaks havoc on life. I think this is a a reality that is often forgotten in, in our generation and in our culture because we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Uh, 99% of us have probably never cultivated crops a day in our life. Probably never will because we just go to the grocery store. And we use digital money and sometimes we spend money that we don't even have because of credit cards and maybe because you have really generous parents. But the reality of the world is that if you don't work, you don't eat. And if you don't eat, you die. Look, I'm not against grocery stores. I love grocery stores. They're awesome. I love me some Trader Joe's. It's great. And I'm not against, I'm not against financial support either. I'm not against generosity from friends and family. That's, that's great. But if those things are making you blind to the devastating and horrible consequences of sin, then I think it would be really, really good for you to work hard for your next meal. I think it would be really, really maturing for you and and sobering for you if you thought about the immense amount of effort it takes to put food on your table and a roof over your head. As you consider or, or even take part in the sweat and labor and hard work behind those basic life necessities, that will be a reminder for you from God of the danger of sin. Work in its cursed and fallen state is God's reminder for us that sin has serious and devastating consequences. And in reminding us of that, it reminds us of something else too, doesn't it? Because verses 17 through 19 of Genesis 3 are meant to go with verses 14 and 15. We were never meant to read the curse of verses 17 through 19 without reading the curse of verses 14 through 15. And so just as we are reminded every single day of our lives that work is cursed, we can be reminded every single day of our lives that the serpent is cursed too. 
when we remember the hard and painful effects of sin, we can also remember that God has promised a full and final solution to that sin. You see, even before God curses the ground in in verse 17, he curses the serpent in verse 15. And in this verse, we see God's first promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this verse, we see the promise that the serpent will will bruise just the, the heel of the offspring of the woman, but in return, the offspring of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. The serpent will only wound Jesus. Jesus will be scourged and crucified and buried, yes, but he would only stay dead for three days. And then he would rise from the grave, declaring his authority over death, declaring that he was and he is exactly who he said. And, and, and Jesus was only bruised momentarily because of that resurrection, because he rose to newness of life. You see, in that resurrection, Jesus dealt a fatal blow to the head of the serpent after receiving a, a momentary blow to his own heel. In his resurrection, Jesus proved that he never once fell to the temptations of Satan like Adam did in the passage we just read. He proved that his, his death was not for himself, but that it was on behalf of sinners like you and I, so that if we trust in him, we can be, be united with him in his resurrection. You see, Jesus made a way for us who are sinners by nature and by choice to finally overcome the tempter because we are unified with him who has already done it perfectly. At the cross, Jesus was wounded, but Satan was defeated. And that deceiver, that liar, that devil is rendered impotent and powerless for those who are in Christ. This is the good news. This is the gospel that God promised in Genesis 3.15. It's the good news that we heard about and we saw play out in the gospel of Mark just last week. And it is the good news that we must remember every time we remember the fallenness of this world. If the pain and sweat and difficulty of work is an inescapable reminder of sin, then it also ought to be an inescapable reminder of Christ. And so when work is hard and when it's laborious and when it's strenuous, remember that sin has tragic consequences, but also remember that sin has been defeated once and for all through Christ. Work is the way it is, not because sin or evil has some has some effect or authority that is outside of God's control. You see, God is the one behind the perfect work of Genesis 1 and 2, and God is also the one behind the curse of work in Genesis 3, and they both serve as signposts that point back to him. And so through the curse of work, we see God's righteousness mingled with God's grace. Uh, We see his intolerance of sin and yet his mercy to save. We were never meant to read the curse for sin without reading the promise for salvation. And so as we work, we remember the gospel. 
Works serves as God's built-in reminder for mankind that sin has consequences, but that sin has been defeated. Do you see the wisdom of God in the difficulty of our work? And do you see how, how valuable and how good for us work is? Even when it's hard and painful, that's God's design. Are you able to have a thought of the gospel when you work? even when it's unpleasant? Next time you you sit down to study, next time you get up to work, ask yourself, what is God teaching me here? What is God reminding me of? What is God pointing me towards in his sovereignty as as he orchestrates every detail of my day today? If you recognize work as God's reminder for you of his righteousness and his mercy, I think you'll be helped in orienting your work towards God and making your work your worship. Work honors God because it's his design, because it's his reminder for us. I hope you're starting to see how kind and and how gracious it is of God to give us work. God's work, God's wisdom is, is all over our work in what it is by very nature, in what it does, and in what it produces. It all points to God. And the last thing that I want to show you about work has the same heart behind it in such a profound way. The last thing I want to show you about work is that work is God's kingdom strategy for mankind. Work is God's kingdom strategy for mankind. Take your Bibles and and flip all the way over to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, we're going to see that work has incredible purposes for us as men and women in God's church. Work has immense value as a means by which God advances his kingdom through the building of his church. Let me ask you a question. Have you thought about your lives in the office as an accountant or as an engineer, or as a barista in a coffee shop? Have you thought about those jobs as a means by which Jesus fulfills his promise to build his church? If you haven't, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12 have the power to transform your life at work. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. Let's start at the end of verse 10, just for a bit of context. Read it with me. Verse 10b, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Your work is part of God's kingdom strategy. It is. And I think we can understand that in two ways from this verse. First, we're going to see work as an act of evangelism, and then we're going to see work as an act of love. Evangelism and love. How is work an act of evangelism? Well, because it may be the only time an outsider interacts with or sees the life of a Christian. 
Paul calls unbelievers outsiders in verse 12. They are outside the church, outside the family of God. And so if they are outsiders, more often than not, you're not going to find them inside the four walls of a church. And if that is true, then the only chance that they may ever have to see the beauty of the gospel is you. You have the chance to put the gospel on display. Paul says in Titus 2 that that you have the chance to adorn the gospel. And when you do, it is very, very noticeable. As college students and and as young working people, do you realize how much a, a Christian life of holiness and integrity and diligence sticks out like a sore thumb? Do you realize how abnormal it is to, to not complain? Do you realize how abnormal it is to not say bad things about your professor or your boss? Do you realize how, how abnormal it is not to cheat or not to lie or, or to show up on time or to, to work hard? I heard one of our, our uh, leaders at the UCLA Bible study talking about his work and his job, and people would literally ask him, how come you don't complain, man? Why aren't you complaining? It's that obvious. It is that noticeable when you conduct yourself like a Christian in the workplace. And then all of a sudden, there are open doors for the gospel everywhere. You see, living quietly, minding your own affairs, working with your hands, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, it sounds simple, but But if you stop to look out in the classroom and in the workplace, people are always getting loud about something. There's always something to complain about. People are always gossiping about other people, talking about other people and not minding their own affairs. People are always lazy. They're trying to avoid their work as much as possible. And so if you live like a Christian, like a Christian should in contentment and in peace and and in diligence at work, you'll show that the gospel has the power to change lives. Paul says in verse 12 that you will walk properly before outsiders or in the presence of or in the sight of outsiders. Have you considered that your conduct at work may be the only chance, the only chance someone has to see the power of the gospel Have you considered that your conduct at work might be the means by which God uses to save a soul? Your integrity at school, your hard work, your diligence can be a means by which God accomplishes his purposes to gather for himself a people. Your work is tied to the advancement of the kingdom, so please don't waste that opportunity. Represent Christ well to outsiders. Pray for for open doors for the gospel. And when they are open, walk through them and proclaim the saving power of Jesus. You need to understand your work as a means of evangelism. And it should push you to rejoice in that work. At the same time, uh, this passage also tells us something that work does inside the church. Work is also an act of love. Work is an act of love. Look at what follows immediately after that word, outsiders, in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, and be dependent on no one. Work is not only a chance to walk properly 
before outsiders. Work is also a chance to be dependent on no one, and that's financially speaking. Crossroads, this is such an important perspective to to have on your work and your money. What Paul is talking about here is a heart that has not fallen prey to the love of money. Well, what Paul is talking about here is a heart that is so dialed into God's kingdom purposes in his church that he will work and he will work hard so that his brothers and his sisters aren't burdened. Do you see how other-centered that is? When you think about your career, do you think about how it will enable you to serve others? Or do you just think about what you're good at? You just think about what you like to do or, or what will get you a good paycheck. Paul thought about it in, in such an other-centered way. And how can I be a blessing to others? How can I serve others? Turn over to 2 Thessalonians 3 for just a moment. 2 Thessalonians 3, let's look at verses 7 through 8 together. Paul here provides such a, a great example for us of this approach to work and money. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 8. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. You see, Paul was a busy guy. When he wasn't preaching or or writing or or getting shipwrecked or getting persecuted, what was he doing? Verse 8 with toil and labor, we worked night and day. Why? So that we might not be a burden to any of you. Do you see how work is an act of love for Paul? Paul worked long and hard hours, night shifts even, also that he would not put a burden on those that he ministered to, also that he would be dependent on no one. And to be clear, uh, Paul was not like some, no, I'll pay the bill. No, I'll pay the bill kind of guy. This wasn't just him being culturally polite. It wasn't just a cultural norm like it is for my grandma. An Asian grandma will physically harm you to pay the bill. That is not what's happening here. He's not just being culturally polite. Paul simply saw that he had an opportunity to act in love towards his brothers and sisters. He saw that the early church was struggling and persecuted and probably tied on money, and he saw an opportunity to make his own living, and so he did. He wanted to be a blessing and not a burden to the church. You have got to see your work as an opportunity to be a blessing to the church and not a burden. This is so important for you as college students, Crossroads. I know that a lot of you don't have a ton of money. I know that a lot of you might not have any money or even negative money. And I know that maybe a lot of you don't even have the opportunity to earn a lot of money right now. But right now, with a fat zero in your bank account, you can settle your conviction and you can settle your worldview that you want to be a blessing towards God's people. You can cultivate a heart that is eager to work, even if you can't right now. You can cultivate a heart that is 
eager to work because it enables you to bless people in a unique way rather than be a burden. I know that a lot of you don't have a ton of money, but you can love money and not have it. You can love money and not have it, and you can have money and not love it. For some of you, those 90,000 hours of work in your life will accumulate an amazing amount of wealth. For others of you, you may just barely be getting by. And either way, if you show up to work with a heart to bless the people of God, to love the people of God and not to burden them, God will be pleased with you and he will use that for his purposes. You see, your work can contribute to the the cosmic purpose of God as he builds his church by bringing in the outsiders and by building up his people. What a privilege it is to work. As college students, I'm sure that you've heard a ton about work. Whether it's your parents telling you what you should do or or colleges giving you career fairs, or or just you trying to figure it out on your own, I think it's so important right now that you remember that work is first and foremost oriented towards God. It's so important that you remember that work does not infringe on your spiritual life. Work uh, does not get in the way of, of the spiritual stuff or your church life. It can, but it's not designed to. Any job, you could be a pastor or, or a, an electrician or a musician. All of it can honor God. All of it can be worshipful. It's all a chance for you to live out God's perfect and good design. It's all a chance for you to remember the consequences of sin and then to remember the gospel. And it is all a chance for you to contribute to God's purposes in this world. Austin's heart to to shepherd you all was so evident to me. It was so obvious to me as he chose this little uh, three-week mini-series for you guys. Because few things will be so constant in your life as work. And if you grow your biblical view on work now, you're going to be well-prepared to steward those 90,000 hours for God's glory. And just like work, play and rest can and should make up a huge chunk of your life. And it's so important that you know what God has to say about it. And so as we think about our work this week, and as we think about play and rest in the next few weeks, I'm I'm praying that you will see more and more how the Bible can can shape and, and help you make the most of every single aspect of your life for God's glory. I'm praying it's, it's going to help you take things that, that don't seem spiritual, things that you might even think get in the way of the things that are spiritual and show you how they are meant for your good and for God's glory. And I hope that by the end of it, we can all know more of what Paul means and even live more of what Paul means when he says, whether we eat, or whether we drink, we can do all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your wisdom, Lord. Uh, We see your perfect and matchless wisdom in the way that you've designed this world 
for your own glory. And in designing it for your own glory, because of the the kind and gracious God you are, it is also for our good. And so as we think about our work, Lord, I pray that you would help us to ultimately look to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that gives us the opportunity to worship you, whether it be in song, as we'll sing in just a few minutes, or whether it's in the office, help us to take every thought captive to make every moment of our life count for your glory. God, we're grateful that you've enabled us to be worshipers of you, and we pray that you would be pleased with our worship even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.